life surrounded. Troubles abounded. The path I traveled was cast in darkness. The unknown reached out before me and behind me. I was overwhelmed by struggles. I could not forge my own way. I had to rely on another, leaving my past behind in search of the truth. I took wrong turns and ended up farther from where I was meant to be. But there was grace. There was direction that did not fail. I had faith. When creation rose up around me, I glorified my creator. But I still needed his word, a map to show me the way. Together, they guided me home. There was only one way, Christ alone. There is only one true north. Well, good morning. It is good to have you here, uh, here in the building. It's good to have you as well in Skagit at our, our Skagit campus. Uh, so glad that you're with us. And those of you who are online or at Boca Raton in uh, Trinity Church of God there in Florida, uh, good to have you. Uh, and those in the live stream, uh, thanks for being with us. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but tis the season. <clears throat> and uh, unfortunately... When you say tis the season, it can mean multiple things. Tis the season for indulgence. And uh, I don't want to start off on a negative note, but in this season, there are some who will indulge and spend way more money than they should. And there are some that will indulge and be focused on material stuff way more than they should. There are a few that will indulge and eat more calories than they should. Uh, Some will indulge and drink more than they should. And many of us will have our schedules at an unhealthy level and schedule beyond what is right more than we should and indulge. And what happens is in this season of indulgence, we get to January and we have debts to pay, weight to lose, we're wiped out and we're unsatisfied. And all of that was to celebrate the one who said, deny yourself, come to me and you will find rest. Now, some of you are saying, What a Scrooge he is. I'm not anti-Advent. I'm not anti-Christmas. I'm not anti-sweets. I mean, if you were planning on giving me something and after that statement you're canceling me, put me back on the list. I love all of that. All I'm saying is that during this season, it is easy to get a little fuzzy on what's important. It's easy to get out of focus and we need to return to true north. Now, some of you are really smart because right now you're saying, here's the obligatory Jesus is the reason for the season talk. He's going to give us the old wise men still seek him and every other Christian bumper sticker cliche he can come up with. Now, hold on there, wise person. While it's true about Christmas, the reality is this, this, this tendency to drift and need to return to true north is not just a Christmas issue, and especially with the people of God. This is the human condition. This is our reality. I mean, throughout the Old Testament, God's people would drift. The whole reason that there are prophets in the Old Testament is because God was sending someone to get them back to point them true north. They had drifted, they had gotten fuzzy on what was important, and so all of the prophets are about bringing God's people back to a a bearing of true north. 
In the New Testament, in the Gospels, when Jesus came, the religious leaders were there. They were doing their religious stuff, but they had gotten off, and Jesus came to try and steer them back to true north. You have all your religious rituals, all the things you do, but you've missed the thing that is most important. And those who followed were a part of this kingdom of God. And many of Paul's writings, his letters, his epistles, were because the people of God had drifted. They had drifted relationally. They had drifted morally. They had drifted doctrinally. And he's writing to correct them, to bring them back to true north. And it goes even beyond the pages of scripture. Throughout the pages of human history in the church, there have been popes and there have been priests and there have been pastors who have drifted in with a need to come back to true north. And while you may sit there really smug thinking about all those people that were off in the OT and all those people that are off in the NT and all those people that are off in history, it's all about you and me because we have a tendency to drift as well. That, that line from that hymn that we rarely sing, <laughs> prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love and the need to come back to true north. And so I'm wondering, as we start this series on True North, not just about this season, but about our lives, if we could together read a scripture that would be a prayer and a proclamation. Because I think if you're like me, you know that there is a a tendency at times to to get off course. And it's not necessarily, I'm turning my back on God, I'm rebelling, I'm, I'm throwing away all that is sacred. It's just sometimes we get busy. Sometimes we chase squirrels in life. Sometimes our priorities get off and we just need to be brought back to true north. So if you would like, and if you're willing, would you read this Psalm 25, five with me as a prayer and a proclamation out loud, whether here or in Skagit, even in uh, Florida or online, if you would read this with me out out loud. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my savior, and my hope is in you, all day long. Guide me in your truth and teach me. Bring me back to true north. Get me back, recalibrate me. Get me back on the right track. Now this series, True North, is not your typical Christmas Advent series. It's a little different. However, I believe as we immerse ourselves in this series and we embrace what we learn, we will engage in a deeper, sweeter, richer worship of our Lord Jesus Christ this, this Advent than ever if we'll hold on to these things. Now, in order to do that, um, I'm gonna ask for a little bit of grace on the, at least the first half of this, uh, our time together today because I wanna give you a lesson in church history. Some of you are very excited about that, but you haven't convinced yourself. Some of you are not as excited about that. For some of you, this is gonna be review. For some of you, you're gonna learn some things. Some of you, you're gonna learn some things you didn't even care about and you won't even afterwards. But I'm going to give you some church, a, a lesson out of church history, and, and I guarantee you we will land with Scripture and, and, and bring it home. But I want to give us a little bit of a chapter out of our church history and our Catholic roots. Now, again, some of you are saying, I'm not Catholic, I'm Baptist or whatever. You know, I was Assemblies of God. I was Episcopalian, which is just Catholic light, but whatever. <laughs> the reality is this. If you're a part of the church of Jesus Christ, you have, we have Catholic roots, our lineage goes back to the Catholic Church. Now, some of you have actual Catholic roots because you were born or raised in the Catholic Church and maybe you came from that. My wife uh, was born into a devout uh, Catholic family, was baptized here in Bellingham at the Assumption Church. In fact, when she was seven, she had her first communion. I've got a picture of that. This, the, the, the young Doreen Burgess there with her grandma and grandpa after her first communion. 
last night she didn't know I was going to show this picture. I had to sneak this one in. Uh, some of you, uh, not Skagit so much, but some of you old-time Bellingham folks, any of you remember Barter's Drive-In? Cecil and Susan Barter uh, were, uh, were Doreen's grandparents. And so this is actually behind Barter's Drive-In. You may now recognize the T11, exciting uh, there. So she has these Catholic roots and a Catholic background. The reality is we all, as followers of Jesus in the church, have Catholic roots with a Catholic background. And if you'll give me a little grace, we are all a part of the Catholic church, lowercase c, Catholic church. If you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. It gets down and it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the holy, lowercase c, Catholic church and the communion of the saints. The word Catholic not the Roman Catholic organization church. The word Catholic means universal. So when in the creeds it says, I believe in the, in the holy Catholic church, we're talking about the family of God, the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, the brothers and sisters, those who are following Jesus. We are a part of this universal church of Jesus, the Catholic church. Now, some of you, that's just really messed with your head. Hang in there, we're gonna get to this. I wanna give us a little bit of a, a snapshot, just a little piece, a small church history lesson out of one season of our Catholic background. It's in a season where things had gotten fuzzy and we'd kinda gotten off course and needed to return to true north. And it was a season, as I've already pointed out, it was a season of indulgence. Literally, a season of indulgence. And I'll explain it. So this is early 16th century, roughly, give or take, fifth, the year 1515 or so. There's a project going on in Rome, and St. Peter's Basilica is being rebuilt. I don't know if you've ever been to Rome. I've been there a few times. St. Peter's Basilica is amazing. The, the, the architecture, the magnitude, the grandeur, the artwork. I mean, Michelangelo's Pieta is there. I mean, it's, it's an amazing, amazing uh, edifice. So they're rebuilding St. Peter's Basilica. Only one problem. They don't have a budget for it, and it's costing some money. So they have to figure out, how are we going to pay for rebuilding this basilica? The pope at the time was Pope Leo X. Handsome young man here. Pope Leo was a very, very powerful man. Popes usually were in that time, especially very powerful and actually very wealthy. And while he was generous, he also enjoyed a very lavish lifestyle. Pope Leo had a pet elephant. Because that's what you do. And Pope Leo came up with this idea. If someone would give a contribution to the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica, he would issue them a piece of paper that was known as an indulgence. And what it meant was that it would waive all of the penance that they were supposed to do in repentance for their sin. So as they went to confess their sin, now they don't have to do the Hail Marys, Our Fathers, the Rosary, whatever it might be. They pay the money, they get this piece of paper, and it waives the penance. They don't have to do that. Over time, this begins to evolve. And it evolves to the point where it's not just waiving the penance that's been given to them. It gets to the point where it actually would absolve them of their guilt from the sin that they had committed. And so when they would pay the money, they were given this piece of paper from the Pope that said, in essence, something along this line, I absolve you from all thy sins, transgressions, and excesses, how enormous soever they be, and remit to you all punishment which you deserve in purgatory, which, by the way, is a Roman Catholic doctrine they came up with. I think you have a very difficult time trying to build a biblical case for purgatory, but that's another sermon. 
to, all right, to, to, to remit to you all punishment which you deserve in purgatory on their account, and I restore you to the innocence and purity which you possessed at baptism, so that when you die, the gates of punishment shall be shut. So they lay this money down and they get this piece of paper. Well, <clears throat> it was going really well in Rome, but realizing there's a great market that is yet to be hit, they sent this out beyond Rome. There was a man named Johann Tetzel, and he was given the commission of selling these indulgences in other parts of Europe. And one of those places was in Germany. Tetzel took it to the next level. He said, not only if you buy this penance, uh, if you buy this indulgence, will it waive your penance, and not only will it absolve you, of, absolve you of your guilt for your sin, but he took it to the next level. He said, and if you pay it, you can actually pay to get some of your friends and relatives out of purgatory. And this was great because now you can slap the money down. It's like a monopoly, get out of jail free deal. So Aunt Mary and her drinking issues, she gets out of purgatory. And Uncle Frank and his anger issues, he gets out. And they could pay. And, and Tetzel is, um, is attributed with coining the phrase, pun intended, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So you've laid the money down, and now you've got this friend, brother, relative, a neighbor. They owe you because you bailed them out of purgatory. Then it went one step further. Not only to waive your penance, not only to absolve you of your guilt, not only to get your neighbors and relatives and friends out of purgatory, you could put money down and get forgiveness for sins not yet committed. This was great. It's like a prepaid punch card. I'm going to Vegas for the weekend. Give me a second. Let me run down to the priest, pay in advance. Now I've got a whole bunch of forgiveness I'm going into the weekend with, just ready to be spent up. You can see now what's going on is people are spending the money to be able to have the, no longer have to do the penance, have their guilt removed, get their family out of purgatory, and free for all, whatever. I mean, it was like Black Friday. People are just rushing, going on. So all of this is going on, and Tetzel's doing this in Germany. There's a young, uh, a young monk who's a, a theologian. He's a professor. He's a priest. Uh, his name is Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Not, I've got a dream, Martin Luther. That's Martin Luther King. This is Martin Luther. Those you raised in church, maybe you grew up singing, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Anybody? Okay, Martin Luther wrote those lyrics. He didn't write the tune. The tune actually came out of the bar. That's kind of a cool story in itself. But he wrote the lyrics to A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So he's a theologian. He's a priest. And he's reading scripture. And he finds that the things he's reading, especially in Romans and Galatians, don't square up with the teachings and the practices of the Pope and the church. And it bothers him. Because scripture says this, and yet the Pope and the church is practicing and saying this. And so he decides that he will write out some statements that need to be addressed, need to be discussed. And he writes out 95 of these statements. They're referred to as the 95 Theses. And this is an important date. On, on, on uh, Halloween, October 31st, 1517, there's a knocking noise on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. But it's not a knocking for trick-or-treat. It's actually the sound of a nail being pounded into the door with these 95 statements, and it's kind of a truth or trash statement. Now, here's what I would need to point out to you. When Martin Luther brought these 95 theses, 
they were written in Latin because he was bringing them for them to be discussed amongst the clergy and the leaders of the church. He wasn't trying to stir up the people. He wasn't trying to split the church. He was just saying, these things need to be addressed. What the Bible says and what we're saying don't come together. What, we're, what the Bible uh, preaches and what we're practicing are not on the same page. And with that, he wasn't trying to rebel from the church, wasn't trying to split the church, he wasn't rejecting the church. He said there are some practices and some teachings that we have that we need to get back to true north on. We need to reform some of our teaching and some of our practices. That's where you get the name or the word reformation. That's the beginning of the reformation. So he writes out these 95, and you can actually go online and, uh, if you want to and just print them off. There's about three and a half pages of these 95 statements. Uh, some of them are, are hard to understand. It doesn't make sense, but, but let, let me just read one of them for you, and you can see why this probably didn't go over real great. Thesis number 86. Since the Pope's income today is larger than that of the wealthiest of wealthy men, why does he not build this one church at St. Peter with his own money rather than with the money of indigent believers? That didn't win him a lot of favors with the Pope. He's saying, Pope, you're richer than all of us. Why don't you build the church instead of charging all these other people? Well, because the Gutenberg printing press had been uh, invented, what, 60, 70 years before, his theses were taken off the wall. They were translated into German and other languages for Europe. They were printed and they were distributed. Now, it's not just some clergy that are talking about it. The people are talking about this. And it draws the attention of Rome, the Pope, and the church. So four years later, you still with me? I know this is a lot. Four years later, in 1521, in a place called Worms, Germany, there's an assembly of the leadership of the church. Uh, the, this is my inner little boy that I love. That assembly in Worms is actually referred to as the Diet of Worms, which is just so much fun. That's why history is beautiful. All right. So in this assembly, the, the Diet of Worms, this Diet of Worms, and Martin Luther is asked to recant all of his 95 theses to get in line with the church. And this is where it is reported. He said, um, I, uh, here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. To which the Pope and the leadership promptly defrocked him, excommunicated him, and branded him not only a heretic, but an outlaw. And so he left. But others left with him. And those who left with him in this reforming reformation, those who left him and followed him, followed Luther, became the Lutherans. So you're going, see all the stuff you're learning today? And because they were protesting what the Pope and what Rome and what the church was doing, they became known as the Protestants or the Protestant church. So all of this happens. The Reformation movement starts as they try to reform some things, get back on true north. The Lutherans start this off with Luther and his followers, and they're part of this Protestant church because they're protesting um, what is going on in Rome with the Pope. Now, it was primarily around this whole concept of the indulgences, but Luther made other reforms, one of which I'm very grateful for. Luther, in his new group, he allowed clergy to get married. He heard from the Lord, hallelujah. <laughs> I, I'm so grateful for him for that. In fact, Luther himself, this is a little side note, Luther himself married a former nun who was 16 years his junior. He helped her escape from her convent in a fish barrel. What a story. Why no one has ever taken that love story and made a movie, I have no idea. It's beautiful. It's an incredible thing. 
So Luther and his reformers, they synthesized these 95 theses and all their beliefs down to five main pillars of this difference, of these five foundational, fundamental essentials of Christianity along the, the word of God. And they're referred to as the five sole. Now the word sole, and, and there, there are five Latin phrases, the word sola is uh, used, uh, or a version of it, on each of these phrases. And sola... Uh, it's where we get our word soul. It's where we get our word solo. It's the root word of Han Solo. <laughs> maybe not, but maybe. Sola means alone or only. And so they were talking about these things that are, are alone or only. And so what I want to do um, is that I want to go through these five real quickly and then spend some time on one of them. In our series leading up to and including Christmas Eve, we're going to focus on each of these five pillars, each of these sole. And while I said it's a very unique Advent type of a series, if we grasp a hold of these, I honestly believe it will enrich, enrich and enhance our worship of the living Jesus Christ as we go into this season. All right, so here are the five. The first one was sola scriptura. And this is like scripture alone. And this is the, the, the source of authority. Because up to this point, the Pope had authority and tradition had authority and scripture, yes. But they were saying, no, no, our authority is scripture alone. There can be great thoughts and, and teaching from leaders and even popes. There can be great things from tradition. But when push comes to shove, if our leaders and tradition goes against the, God, the word of God, we stick with God's word. And it's scripture alone. That becomes our authority. That becomes our marching orders. A uh, little side uh, story on this. In the late, uh, mid to late 90s, there was a man named Father Jim, uh, was the priest at the Assumption Church here in Bellingham. And we had a mutual friend that brought us together. He was Catholic, I was Protestant, he was a priest, I was a pastor, he was a skier, I was a snowboarder. A lot of differences there, but we came together. And we, the two of us, went to Whistler for a day. Drove up, drove back, and the whole thing. It was fantastic. Because I could ask him all the questions about Catholicism that I always wondered about. You know, what's the whole deal about worshiping Mary? What's the deal about praying to saints? What about this and that? In the course of things, I asked him, Father Jim, I probably just called him Jim. I don't know that I called him Father. But I said, Jim, what do you think the Protestant church could learn from the Catholic church? He said, well, one of the things is the reverence of God. I mean, you guys have what a friend we have in Jesus. You make Jesus your buddy, which he's our friend, but you miss his reverence of God. And I'm like, okay, he's got a point there. So another thing is, is unity. So our, the entire Catholic church nation, worldwide is unified. You guys are so splintered. He's got a, got a point there. So we talked, and then he says, well, Bob, what do you think the Protestant church, or the Catholic church could learn from the Protestant church? I said, well, I've got these 95 things here. <laughs> no, no I, I didn't say that. <laughs> Bob Luther. Um, I, said, I said, Jim, here's the deal. We have some people at Cornwall that, that were raised Catholic, went to Assumption, some of them, and different things. Here's what I hear over and over again from people that come from a Catholic background. Is I hear something, some version of this phrase, I never knew that I could read the Bible for myself. Because we always were told, the priest does that. The priest will read for us. And Jim had a great sense of humor. And his response was, Martin Luther read the Bible for himself and see what happened to him. Like, okay, okay, all right. So the first pillar here was this sola scriptura, that, that the scripture is our authority. And then there's sola fide. 
This is by faith alone. And this is the means of our justification. How is it that we're justified? It's not by paying and buying some, some kind of an indulgence. And it's not from something that we do. It's faith in what Jesus has done. Faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And putting our trust in Jesus and his provision. And not on anything I or the Pope or the church or anyone else does. So it's faith alone. A third one was sola gratia. And this is the beautiful thing. It's grace alone. This, this is the good news of the gospel. It's only by the grace of God that we have the amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that it's all about God's grace. And the fourth one is solus Christus, is that it's in Christ alone. Now, when you begin to see this, Jesus Christ is our great high priest, that we can go directly to him because of what he's done for us. We don't need an intermediary to go between us and Jesus. He is our great high priest. We go directly to him. Now, while these are, are separate, they saw them all together as one. So what they would say is, upon the authority of Scripture, we believe that only in Christ and only by grace and only through faith can you have salvation. So they all work together. And because all of this is simply because of God's goodness to us, the fifth one was soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory, that he would receive all of the glory. Now, when you look at these five pillars, I mean, this is some pretty good stuff. Think about us in our context here at Cornwall Church. Our number one goal and objective is to point people to Jesus Christ. That is, we want more than anything else for people to see Jesus, love Jesus, follow Jesus, know Jesus, become more like Jesus, transformed by Jesus. It's all about Christ. And our foundation is scripture around here, scripture. It doesn't matter what our culture says or what other churches say or other leaders say. We want to go by what God's word says. And we believe that, that we have received God's grace. And because we have been recipients of God's enormous grace, we ought to be the ones who distribute grace more than anybody else. This ought to be a place of enormous grace. This ought to be a house of grace that no matter who comes here, what they've done, where they are, what they believe, what they don't believe, how they live, what they practice, they can receive grace. And that we would all be growing in our faith and all that works together so that God alone gets the glory. Good marching orders right here. So with that, I want us to spend the remainder of our time going into this one a little bit. Now, we're going to spend all of next week on this as well. I'm going to kind of lay the foundation on this uh, glory to God alone piece. Next week, we're going to get really practical on this of what does it mean to live in such a way that God alone gets the glory. That'll be more practical. So let me just kind of lay the foundation uh, for that uh, today. So Luther does all, and his reformers do all this in the, in the uh, 1517 uh, and beyond, 1521 and go on. 200 years later, there's a German composer named Johann Sebastian Bach. Maybe you've heard of him. He's, an, he's a genius as he composes music. And one of the, um, one of the things about every piece of, of music that Bach composed is when he was done with it, writing out the score, at the bottom of that, at the end of that piece of music, he always put S-D-G. And then he would sign his name, S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria. My work is done only to the glory of God. All the things that I write, it's all for God's glory. This music is an expression of beauty and grace. It's all about God's glory, and it's all for God's glory. Everything he wrote was S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria. 
And as I begin to think about that, how for him, music was this expression of the glory of God. Thinking about, for, again, some of us who've been in church, we know that music and worship is our expression of glory to God as well. That, that hasn't changed. And some of us, from the earliest age, this whole concept of glorifying God in children's church or wherever, some of us sang that song. The Lord told Noah, there's gonna be a floody, floody. Lord told Noah, there's gonna be a flood. Get those children out of the muddy, muddy children. Of the, and it gets to the refrain. So rise and shine and? Yeah, 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 right? Give God the glory, glory. Okay, so even as kids, we were giving God the glory. How about the battle hymn of the Republic? You know that, that refrain, glory, glory, hallelujah. Charles Wesley's great hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great redeemer's name, the glories of my God and King, the triumph of his grace. Fanny Crosby's classic, to God be the glory, great things he has done, so loved he the world that he gave us his son. Down in the, in the course where it says, oh come to the Father through Jesus' son and give him the glory, great things he has done. All the way through, it's just like from, from Bach and through our lives, that glory has just been lifted up in worship and in song and in music, but it's not just there. Once you begin to see through this filter, you begin to read scripture and you begin to see how this is all over the pages of scripture. The apostle Paul, who was all about the glory of the law, the glory of Judaism, the glory of his own righteousness, found Jesus and it changed everything. So when he writes his young protege, Timothy, he says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Throughout, when, last summer when we studied Ephesians, in that prayer in Ephesians, it says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. In Philippians 2, in that great hymn of the early church, where he says about God and Jesus, says, therefore, he was given the highest place in the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Revelation chapter four, verse 11 says, for you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they are created. And Jesus, when he's talking in John 15, he says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. You read John 17, the high priestly prayer, and how over and over again, this becomes the concept about the glory of God. It's all about God's glory. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. All of life is about God's glory. All of creation is about God's glory. All of salvation is about God's glory. All of human history is about God's glory. The cosmos is about God's glory. Eternity is about God's glory. It's all about God's glory. In Romans, Paul writes this doxology and he says, uh, who has ever given to the Lord that the Lord should repay him? Because really, everything we have, including our breath, this day, this heartbeat, Everything we have is from God. And he concludes that when he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So, to him 
be the glory forever and ever. From him, everything finds its source. Every created thing comes from him. He's the creator of all things. And through him, we're sustained. In him, we live and move and have our being. We're sustained by him. The reason that anything even exists, he holds it all together. The reason that the world doesn't just fly apart is because he holds it all together. And to him, he is the end goal of all things. There's not anything in this created world that isn't from him, through him, and to him. So he gets the glory for that. You see, God is the only uncreated one. God is the only self-sufficient one. God is the only self-dependent uh, one. He is the only one that doesn't need an external power force being to keep him together. He's all things. Here's the amazing thing. This glory thing deserves its own series. I'm, I'm telling you, there's so much. In fact, I struggled so much trying to narrow down what I would cover in our, our little time together today. Glory, this word glory, is like, it's like a noun and an adjective and a verb. Even with God, I mean, just with God alone. It's his noun, his, his majesty, his splendor, his holiness. It's his glory. It's this thing. It's a noun. But it's also used as an adjective. His glorious name. His glorious power. His glorious works. And it's a verb. It's an action. He glorifies us. We are to glorify the Lord. The whole concept of God and his glory is so massive. I, I, as I was reading and studying, I, I took bits and pieces from several different, and I put together this definition. This is not original to me. This is a medley of theologians. Glory, the exhibition of his divine attributes, his infinite perfection, his wondrous deeds, and the radiance of his presence. This is God and his glory. It's, it's who he is. And it's not even contingent on what he does. Even if he never did miraculous, wonderful, glorious, mysterious works, he would still be all glorious. But he has his glorious works as well and his presence, the glory of the Lord. You know, God shows up, the glory of the Lord shone round about them. His presence is there. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, there's this question answer thing. It says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, just push pause here for a second. What if as we enter into this Advent season, what if this was our goal? What if this was our chief end? What if we said, you know, in the next month, month and a half, I just want to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Tell me that would not enhance your worship experience this Advent season. And here's the interesting thing, is that our chief end is about glorifying God. God's chief end is about glorifying God. That God is all about exalting, magnifying, and glorifying himself. And there's a part of us that initially that we just recoil at that because that, that sounds like, well, that doesn't seem right, that seems prideful, that seems arrogant, that seems narcissistic. Listen, God is the most God-centric being in the universe. Because if God was centered on anything else, it would be a form of divine idolatry. There is no one or no thing above God. Who would we want him to be centric on? Us? Are you kidding me? No. On God. 
I love what John Piper said. Um, God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue and the most loving act he can perform. Anything less than that would truly be idolatry. All right, I, I missed that. Let's go back to that, that verse that you guys had. It. There we go. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. And I'll say this. It's not because he's got this ego that needs to be fed. It's not because he's got this low self-esteem and he needs to kind of boost himself up. You know why it's okay for God to be God-centered and not us to be us-centered? Because he's God. And we're not. There is no one, there is nothing higher than God. A couple other thoughts about, about God and his glory. God's glory cannot be increased or diminished by us. God's glory cannot be increased by our praising him and glorifying him, and it cannot be diminished by our lack thereof. God doesn't have this much glory, and oh, if we will praise him and glorify him, he'll have this much. No, no, no. He just is glorious. Whether we praise him or not, that doesn't change. Maybe a poor analogy. The sun, 93 million miles away, energy, power, fusion, all of this light, this heat, this warmth, all of this gravitational pull of the sun. If I today say, I love the sun, does it make the sun more glorious? No. If I say, I don't believe in the sun, does it diminish the glory of the sun? No. The sun just is. God in his glory just is. Whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we recognize it or not, whether we rejoice in that or not, whether we lift him up or not, he just is glorious. And God's glory, here's a crazy thing, God's glory is beautiful and terrible at the same time. It's tremendous and it's traumatic. It's awe-filled and awful. Isaiah 6, Isaiah is in the very presence of God and his response is, wow, this is cool. No, woe to me, I am undone. Literally, I am disintegrating. I can't be in this presence. This is too much. Another poor analogy, and this will probably happen in the next month. It seems like it happens every year. We get uh, snow in the mountains and the lowlands. Things are going good. Ski season opens up, and then a warm front comes in off of the Pacific, bringing in warm weather and rain. And the rain dumps, and the warm weather melts all these early snows, and all the rivers get flooded. And on the news, King 5, Cairo, all of the news shows one picture, Snoqualmie Falls. And at that point, you, you've seen it, right? Look at Snoqualmie Falls, and there's billions of gallons gushing over this falls, and it's beautiful, and it's magnificent, but it's terrible. It would tear you apart. It would destroy you if you were in the midst of it. And God's glory is beautiful, but it's terrible. There's a time in Exodus chapter 33, Moses gets a little bit cocky and he says, so now God, show me your glory. And God says, eh, not a good idea. You can't handle the truth. I mean, this would not be good for you at all. And using anthropomorphic terms, God says, listen, you go in that little cave and I'll put my little hand over you and then I'll let my goodness pass in front of you. But you can't see my glory. It will destroy you. But it is beautiful. An amazing thing with all of that, God says, I, I do want you to get a glimpse of it, however. I, I do kind of want to tip my hand and let you see my glory. And God's glory is displayed in creation. It's displayed in his world that he has created. 
You know that passage I talked about in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six? When Isaiah is there and God is there and the angelic beings are circling the throne and night and day, nonstop, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is Lord. The whole earth is filled with his glory. All of earth, the changing of the seasons, the beauty, uh, all of the, the systems, the, the, the intricacies, the mysteries, it's all filled with the glory of God. In Psalm 19 it's not just the earth. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. It's not just the earth. It's the heavens. He says, look, let me show you a glimpse of my glory. Just a snapshot. In Psalm 8, where it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You have set your glory above the heavens. Your, the earth is filled with your glory. The heavens are filled with your glory. Beyond the heavens, in the universe, beyond the universe, beyond creation, it's all filled with your glory. And it's revealed in Christ it's revealed in Christ last, uh, last year during the Advent. We studied the whole time. We studied John chapter one. In verse 14, it says, we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. We saw the glory of God in Jesus. Hebrews chapter one, verse three, it says that the son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Or how about this one? For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the, the glory of God in the face of Christ. He says, you want to see my glory? I display it in my creation. I revealed it in my son. I, I re, re, uh, and then here's the interesting thing, and this is where we'll go next week. It's reflected in us. Well, this is where we'll get real practical next week. I won't spend any more time on that. It, I will say this. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So next week, we'll talk, what does it look like to live to the glory of God? What, what does that look like and all that? So here's an interesting thing. I'll try to wrap this up, land the plane. Psalm 29, we're giving this instruction. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Now, if we've already determined that God's glory is not increased or diminished by our response to that, then why are we told to, in essence, glorify him? And again, is it because he needs his creations to think he's great? Listen, God doesn't need anybody or anything. God has zero needs in his infinite perfection. If he needed anything, he wouldn't be perfect. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need us to glorify him. He doesn't need us to, to acknowledge that. So why would we be instructed? Because we need it. Because when we do this, we come back to true north. Now we get our perspective right. Now we get our priorities right. Now when there's difficulties and problems in life, we can face those differently because we know of the glory of God. Now when we're trying to plan our lives and all of our priorities, we can keep those straight because we know of the glory of God. Now we understand our very purpose in life is not to chase all of these squirrels out here, but it's to glorify God. And what if, what if this Advent season, we signed off every day, morning and night, 
SDG. Just like Bach did when he would write these incredible works of art that he offered as a gift to God. What if we started our every day saying, Lord, today I want to live this soli deo gloria, to your glory alone. What if at the end of the day, when we sign off and go to sleep, we say, God, may this day have been done SDG, soli deo gloria, to your glory alone. What if we joined the angels? As they say, glory to God in the highest. What if we lived that way? You see, in understanding this pillar, I believe it will enhance our worship this Advent season like never before. Here's what I want you to do. I'm gonna ask that you would stand, if you're willing, here and in Skagit. And this is what I want us to do. There's a verse in Psalm 34, and I want us uh, to read this out loud three times. And here's how I'm gonna ask you to read it. First time, read it in a normal voice. Second time, read it as if you're telling the dog or the next door neighbor to get off your lawn. The third time, read it with a warehouse voice. We good? Crescendo, we know where we're going. Skadget, you join us on this one? Let's all read this together as kind of a, an exhortation to one another. Let's read this first in the normal voice. Here we go. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. All right, we're going to do that. We're going to do that.